Hello, everybody. Welcome to Industry Insider. This is a podcast that provides in-depth, one-on-one discussions about video games and what it's like to work in the industry. Discussions are hosted by me, Dai, a professional video game designer, and we're engaging in casual interviews, hoping to educate and inspire developers of varying skill levels and consumers alike. Today's guest was a very special one. We'd like to stay anonymous, so I'm just going to refer to him as Troll or a nickname that we have for him. Uh, He is an Unreal Engine specialist, and he is an accomplished programmer and game designer of eight years. So welcome to the show. Thank you for um, being on, and hello, how are you? Hello, glad to be here. Such a pleasure to finally get on a podcast with you. Oh, of course. Uh, I know we've worked together in the past, like on design documents and on small projects alike, so we're a little bit familiar with ourselves, but if if you can, just give you give a short introduction, uh, maybe a little bit about your background. Uh, so hello, everyone. I'm... Uh... Let's just call me Troll. I'm fine with that. I have worked with Unreal Engine ever since it's about 20 years now. And I started working with Unreal Engine 4 uh, since 4.0, which is 2014 release. So that's pretty much eight years now. And I've worked primarily as something called a prototype engineer, which is an amalgamation of a game designer and a programmer, wherein a game designer would uh, give me the design document of a mechanic that needs to be implemented, and I would do a basic implementation in Unreal Engine's blueprints, which is why it's basically a new job that has spawned since Unreal Engine. And after that prototype is done in the blueprints, then it's sent off to a programmer team dedicated to optimizing it and making sure it runs as it should. So you are in a very important part of our industry, and frankly, since you're an amalgamation, you're like you're like two parts. You're two very important parts of our industry, and so as as a level designer myself, um, bouncing back and forth between us, you know, it's very important that the documents that I receive and the stuff that I implement and the gray boxes that I put up, when I hand them off to you, um, what is something that annoys you when you get work? Uh, something that annoys me is when a designer comes up with something that would be pretty much impossible to implement without severely degrading performance. Uh, designers really like putting like heavy, very heavy systems into the games. Sometimes it's just to be trendy with uh, the industry. And sometimes even those systems don't exactly make sense for a game that you need to do. And I'm sure you've heard it before. I've heard it a bunch working at Ubisoft. Was like, dude, just worry about performance later. Oh. <laughs> when, especially when you design the system, you need to start working on optim- optimizing it from the very beginning. Otherwise, you just be drowning in tech deck, tech deck when the deadlines start coming in. Yeah, I mean, like when the deadline, the hard deadlines come up, it's like we have to chop. A bunch of stuff that we've implemented we have to we have to cut a bunch of things that are not necessarily our favorite things to cut to meet the performance requirements to meet uh well to to make it run you know uh there was a story uh i guess an anecdote yeah but there was an experience that i had years ago at ubisoft where they were like well uh, this is not what uh x designer would have done and i was like well what did x designer do and they were like, well, they did this. And I was like, well, does X designer stuff work? And they were like, no. And I was like, then you'll do it my way. 
because you know it's like basically running an empty file it's like you're you're not going to get any work done that way like yes my stuff looks terrible my stuff looks unconventional my stuff is a little bit harder to run performance delta wise we're probably looking around like seven to ten percent but my stuff actually works um and i and i cannot stand it when people tell me things that they would have done if they've never done it themselves was there ever a moment in time for you that was like i'm actually the subject matter specialist well as something that's between the game designer and programmer team, it often ends up on me that I'm in the meetings for both those teams. So I will discuss with the game designers about how basically life implementing things, or at least planning how to implement something. And I would be life suggesting them what to do to improve the system so that they aren't actually painful to optimize, add on to, and so on. And later on, I have to also discuss with the programmers about uh, what can be optimized, what can be cut off, what can be added on. So there is often a lot of conflict where I end up in the middle about uh, what should be done, what shouldn't, what shouldn't, what should be added, and so on. And especially when the two teams are uh, just going on their own. So as I said about the optimizing things, like designers absolutely love to add systems for some reason. And it was quite often that I had to tell them, no, this system is pointless. It doesn't add anything to the game. And then the programmers would, uh, would, be, would have pretty much the opposite issue where they want to cut stuff off so that they would optimize things. And they have to basically be a mediator between the two teams so that they don't triangle each other let's say so oh yeah that's i mean i'm sure that that can be a very hostile not a hostile work environment that can be a very hot area of contention to be is especially in between those those two jobs um so we'll just we'll just move this along but is there what what was the moment that you knew you wanted to work in the industry was it like let's say something like unreal engine uh, unreal tournament was that was that a game that you played and you thought to yourself this is really awesome uh, Unreal Tournament is something that I played basically since it got released. So I think I had a few years bef before I discovered that like there's mods on the internet that change the game, add new game modes, occasionally even change the entire game around. And then I thought to myself, I want to make this thing myself. And basically that's how my game development, uh, how do I call it, adventure started. Mm -hmm. Well, that, hey, you know, it's super nice to be able to see somebody who saw something and was like, you know, let's, let's do it ourselves. We're very similar in that regard. Uh, obviously, I started game development just because Kojima announced that he was retiring, and I thought to myself, why, why don't I just make games that I wanted to play? Um, so I ended up leaving my doctorate's program in order to chase that dream. It is respectable, but there's obvious risks to it, especially if you're, like, starting on your own. Yeah, and I think that uh, Kojima and people like Tim Schafer, um, who else? Um, I can't remember any, uh, anybody's names, unfortunately. But uh, people who have the auteur um, position in the game development industry, it, it's very 
it's very dicey. Um, and looking, and this is all in retrospect. Looking back, I was happy to be inspired by Kojima himself, but I think that it's something dangerous to be inspired by people like that because they are very much chaotic in their work nature, in their workplace, in their environments, just because of their nature to be an auteur, to be the one that's pushing it constantly. Um, we're much <clears throat> where if I could go back in time and give myself advice, which would be the next question, if I can get, if I can go back in time and give myself advice, I would tell myself like, please look up to people like Cliff Blazinski and Rod Ferguson, people who are actually specialized in one role instead of being spread thin across several roles. So. One thing that I've noticed, especially with people with Kojima, is they end up creating games that have like a cult following, but it isn't a small following at all. And I think it comes down to he actually has a vision for the game, which is something that I feel like many games are lacking these days. I feel like it's become too formulaic and just having a vision about the game. That's running, it pretty much comes down to like. A career simulator, but it's still it has a vision, a concrete vision that the development team followed, even with his chaotic nature. And I actually really respect that. Oh, I respect that a hundred thousand percent. Which is, um, which is a lot of the reason why I'm happy that I chose him to be somebody who motivated me and to jumpstart my career. But other than that, like, yeah, he's characteristic of being an alter, so I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce the word. The chaoticness may sometimes lead to very slow game development times, which can be a problem, but uh, at least you're, you can be sure that the game won't just spin off randomly at some point and become something completely different. If you know that someone has a concrete vision to follow. Yeah, which is very important because there's a lot of times in game development where, as you know, of course, a bunch of people or a bunch of departments may butt heads, and that ultimately ends up in being, um, what's it called, uh, designed by democracy, and instead of like having designed by one natural path or one path that, um, somebody, one person, an auteur, may have the conviction to follow all the way to the end, which majority of the time it ends up being better than not, um, but there are moments in time where obviously the opposite hold true. I think I would rather call such a thing like having a, a vision or a design philosophy maybe is a more appropriate name for it. Something that you just follow throughout the development of the project and you don't stray away from it. Like a through line. Uh, pretty much. But obviously that will have some... It will cause some conflict initially, but as soon as everyone's on the same page, I believe that you can actually create some games that have a cult following, but let's say they aren't conventionally popular. Yeah, like, well, um, which... Go ahead, but I'm saying, for example, like from software games before they hit the mainstream, of course. Ah, from software. <laughs> we could talk about that so, a little bit. Uh, I'm not exactly familiar with them. If I have to be completely honest, I'm mm -hmm. not exactly a Souls-like person. 
I've pretty much been a shooter guy all my life. Yeah. You know, Doom, Unreal, and so on. So yeah, yeah. one thing that I really liked about Elden Ring is that even watching streams of it, there's something about the open world that just feels natural to explore. And something about the dotted line missing has been rather relieving to see people going, where do I go now? Should I go there or should, or should I go to this place? And wherever they choose, they're actually on the right path. And it's just nice to see something for a change like that, mm -hmm. where the open world doesn't, it's not exactly an open world, let's say so. Or it's like a, a what's it called? It's like segments of, of levels actually put together that are, you know, uh, data streamed and the, uh, the walls are taken down. They're data streamed so that it's constantly moving forward from one level to another level. Because uh, Elden Ring does this a lot. <clears throat> Elden Ring has legacy dungeons that they have, the big, huge set pieces and levels that they have in the game that are akin to what they previously have developed in their linear, uh, linear games. But this time, once you're outside of that, or once you've made your way through the Legacy Dungeon, you get um, basically put right back into the uh, the open world. Yeah, that's... I really respect that game because a lot of, let's say, just sprinkling on the map, it just doesn't exist for Elden Ring. You don't see, like, oh, this small icon, I need to explore it. You just go around the world and... Oh, I haven't been here. Let's go here. Oh, there's a path here that they haven't explored. Let's go here. And the progression feels a lot more natural. And let's is, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, which pretty much comes down to like the dotted line missing. Which can be frustrating for uh, some players, let's be honest. But uh, I think in the end, it just creates a more natural feeling of the open world. Well, I think there are a couple of systems at play for it. Uh, I had actually was DM'd this question, staying on the open world topic. I was, I was DM'd this question and somebody had said, and somebody had tweeted out, uh, I think it's going to be at least five years before open world games get to the level of Spider-Man Miles Morales and Horizon Forbidden West. PlayStation is really ahead of the game. Jeez. Um, and then they sent that to me in a DM and said, what, do you, what are your thoughts on this? Um, so I'm gonna, I might go on a little bit of a, a rant here, so apologize, uh, I apologize. <clears throat> and I thought that, uh, Jesus, there's something in my throat. Pause. But um, there, <laughs> there's three categories that I would like to rank open worlds, or four categories, my bad, that I would like to rank open worlds uh, design in so you can interject if you disagree or agree with any of this stuff uh, number one rewards number two technology number three exploration and the desire of it and number four optional content longevity and I had quoted and I had said that Elden Ring and Breath of the Wild do amazingly in them in, in through each of these categories even though their technology is seemingly years behind that of something like Miles Morales and uh, Forbidden West Rewards are something that you need to give the player, but you can give them too much, right? So Breath of the Wild's creative solution is to give them the same <clears throat> same item over and over and over again by implementing the weapon duration system, which was a hot topic of uh, 
of a lot of people's reasons why they dislike that game, but, you know, I digress. And in turn, this allows the player to be rewarded often by staying meaningful. This also creates a situation where combat then becomes a management system, and that means that it can be completely optional at times, and oftentimes it's better to be optional, thus incentivizing exploration. So exploration lets the player use the host of skills and abilities that Link, and of course the player in Elden Ring, has, the ar has his arsenal through, and um, dungeons and other things. All of that stuff culminates in having a handless, like, having an effortless hand in letting the player choose their own decisions while also simultaneously rewarding them and letting them feel like they are more inclined to explore. And in oh. Elden Ring, yeah, in Elden Ring, their solution is to give armor sets, weapons, Ashes of Wars, and all of that stuff, even though that there are some of those rewards that are locked behind bosses that could potentially stifle the player, the optional content further drives home the rewards and exploration part of the game because all of it is optional. So there's a lot of things in RPGs and open world games that are very annoying is that they, there's a grind element to this kind of stuff, so XP and or <clears throat> weapons or other things. But because this stuff is locked behind optional content in Elden Ring, it makes it feel like a lot of this stuff is done through for player enjoyment. And so it never lets the player feel like they're really genuinely stuck, which is something that has permeated through their last entries in their in their franchises. So anyways, and th and that's how I felt about Breath of the Wild and Elden Ring. Even though they are what I feel like they're only a couple years behind, I feel like conversely um, Miles Morales and Horizon Forbidden West are a couple years behind Elden Ring and Breath of the Wild. So I use Elden Ring and Breath of the Wild as like the, the mainstay for open world design and just in general keeping players locked and engaged. So on the topic of Breath of the Wild, since we quite went past the topic, but uh, the thing about weapon durability systems is something that I feel like has been designed intentionally. It's basically, instead of incentivizing the players, it forces them to use a new weapon. Yeah. Or another thing is, it also allows them to think more about uh, how can I make the world help me in this situation, for example. A lot of like highlight clips you see of Breath of the Wild is yeah. just the world interacting with each other, and you don't even really need a weapon to do that. But it also comes to the frustration of some players that, oh no, my favorite weapon broke, now what am I going to do? Which happened for me a whole lot. I was like, wow, this broadsword broke that's only useful for 25 attacks. Um, broke, and I got upset. So I, I found it that combat was optional, and, and I ended up spending more time trying to navigate around these arenas or around these uh, areas of contention. Makes sense. And also the exploration part is something that should incentivize players, but without just having a hard point in a direction. So with Elder Ring, with you know the unexplored paths, unexplored caves, and so on, I'm not sure if you even see them on the map. Uh, again, I haven't played the game. Um there are map like for caverns and stuff, there are map what's it called? Um, 
map decals and map designs that look look like a a a, a catacomb but for the majority of them they are hidden yeah so, yeah you do have to go out of your way out of your way to find them yeah and another thing you said about uh levels yeah you know leveling in the basically in every rpg at this point it's honestly become a bit too forced inside the games where i played a little bit of assassin's creed origins and in the beginning and i remember just going around this this castle and going behind and backstabbing, backstabbing of an enemy but they were actually like 10-15 levels above me i'm not exactly sure and i only did five percent damage to them which then led me to led to them alerting everyone and then me reaching uh going back to the checkpoint and that was rather frustrating that i felt like the open world was forced against me and it was really disincentivizing me from exploring anything Yeah, and I and I think that Assassin's Creed does a lot, and obviously it's a new Ubisoft franchise, but I think they do a lot to funnel the player into the Golden Path, which um, I'm going to use the, the, the Insomniac's version of the Golden Path, which is the, the story, right? And they like to funnel players into that Golden Path and then give players optional content, um, and then, of course, mark that optional content on the screen so that you're able to see how much that you can do. And I, and I think that design is, I think, designed by addition, whereas Elden Ring and Breath of the Wild is designed by subtraction. I think that design by addition is what players are finding friction with um, in, in exploration, in combat, in rewards, and just in everyday um, traversal of the game. It is pretty much as I said about the dotted line. You have uh, these things appear on the map, and these this other side of the map he has nothing on it. So please don't go there, or there is just enemies that have uh, skills instead of a level number, and you just think to yourself, okay, maybe I shouldn't go there, and you just go on a straight path, and it makes. The games feel a bit too linear while they're trying to boast about being an open world mm -hmm. in a way. So it has made me frustrated a bunch of times. I think I would much rather see like the levels locked as it was, let's say, in Assassin's Creed 1. Yeah. You know, you have hard walls that cover everything. And I think I'd much prefer that than just having an open world that goes, no, you take 10,000 damage, you die, go back to the checkpoint. <laughs> And I think that the open world design philosophy nowadays across that is like across the industry is a, a lot of that. It's like, well, it's a linear game, so let's just boost it to open world just because we can. And it's oftentimes it's very unthoughtful. Is that a word? It's not thoughtful for the player to uh, to have an open world design or an open world game. Um, much like how you said, like previously, it was. Um, open world in the sense that it's uh you can travel between two very large wide linear levels and stages and then you know you can just seamlessly go through this um this uh this connector level um like in the original assassin's creed and once you're through that connector level it's like it feels like these 
huge worlds are connected, but in design-wise, they're very linear. Um, is there something that's... What? How do I say this? Is there something in open-world games or in just in games in general today that is, uh, for you, unnecessary or unneeded? And this doesn't necessarily have to be open-world. This can be any game. I will be honest and say that like leveling is something that has been a bit just too forced inside of games these days. It's, it doesn't feel exactly natural for a, a lot of the games to have levels in them. And again, the open world systems in everything occasionally don't feel exactly like open world. So we have the linear path that you, the designers made, level designers, quest designers, so on. And it feels like you have an open world slapped on top of it instead of designing around the open world. It just doesn't feel natural to have uh, open worlds on a lot of those games. And it seems to me that like a lot of these games have busy, bustling towns and busy, bustling streets and stuff like that, but they often feel empty, which is odd because Elden Ring and Breath of the Wild have, well, essentially nothing in their open world, but they feel much more alive than a lot of these games. Indeed, the, the, the open worlds these days have been a bit too large for uh, systems that procedurally generate them. Elden Ring and Breath of the Wild have the unique thing that everything in them is pretty much placed deliberately. You don't have, uh, okay, so this town now has a thousand citizens. That's it. A lot of things don't feel natural in the open worlds that aren't, you know, Elden Ring, Breath of the Wild, so on. And it feels a lot less convenient to play, maybe. A bit too much slapped on again yeah it's just like again that design by addition is something that's um it's i'm not entirely sure when it started and how it started but it's like it really comes down to we want to make this we want to showcase the player that this is impressive and i think that a lot of game designers level designers whatever it may be are afraid of subtracting things to make it feel as if there is a narrative function or a narrative-driven mechanic behind a lot of this stuff. Um, I I hear a lot of gripes about Elden Ring. It's like, oh, well, why is it like this? Why is it like that? And I'm like, well, there's usually a lot of narrative reasons behind those things. Um, There's usually not a lot of narrative reasons why these bosses are duplicated or why these enemies are in one specific area and not the rest of a uh, the rest of the area around them and i think that again that's something that a lot of these uh new games lack is that, that narrative cohesion which uh narrative cohesion can also be put down to like the deliberate placement of things instead of procedurally generating them so uh could you remind me what was the first part of uh, what you said there was something I really wanted to talk about. Uh, design by addition? Design by addition. No, it was something a bit after that. Uh, a showcase. Showcasing the... Um... Yes, showcase. Showcase, that is right. A lot of the games these days have just started showcasing graphics most of the time instead of exactly showcasing interactive systems 
or uh, it has been a creep ever since the world started being streamed in. I feel like instead of let's say instanced, hard loaded. Mm-hmm. Which is actually odd. Uh, which is not odd, but which is actually fascinating that Elden Ring actually does does that. It 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 loads the entirety of the the game, um, and it it just like dithers the um where areas of interest in while you're near it. But it it loads the entirety of the game from the from the jump. It does make sense, but uh, the the thing about the open worlds is that everything started becoming more and more massive, but. Uh... Since you need like exp- exponentially more resources to fill it in with quests, NPCs, so on, points of interest, and many of the developers just decide to either ignore that part or procedurally generate them, which often leads to the world's feeling way too empty for uh, the scale they're at. It's something that you can fall your eyes over for a few hours, but then you go back to the game and you're like, okay, so I'm on this linear path. How do I fast travel from this point so that I save myself 10 minutes of staring at the desert, basically? Yeah, and I think that that is a great segue into our in, into the next question. Um, obviously, the elephant in the room, that not the elephant in the room, but like the big piece of news that came out this last week was Unreal Engine 5. So how do you have you had a chance to play with it and how do you feel about it? I have actually had a chance to play with it since it released the first alpha of it. Yeah, the I've actually had a chance to play with it back then as well too. I think that was somewhere around 8 months ago. I'm not exactly sure. It's um, been quite a while. Yeah, it was like... No, it was this time last year, I think. It was more than half year, but less than a full year, I feel. Um, maybe let's just say fall, fall of, uh, 2021. All right. That's fine by me. So I have had to, a chance to play with the engine and it is very impressive. My PC is not the top notch. It doesn't even have an RTX. It's a Ryzen 2700 and a GTX 1070 Ti. It's not top of the line and it wasn't back then, but it's pretty decent for 1440p gaming on most games. So I've been using it. And running Unreal Engine 5 on it has been pretty much a marvel. Just seeing a lot of those graphical improvements and even RTX-like graphics on a graphics card that doesn't have RTX. And it has been very impressive. But at the same time, I feel like with all the open world, as I said, it's just going to make people feel like the worlds are emptier. Like we see in the Matrix demo, for example. Is since it got released for free with the uh, 5.0.0, you know, the official release. It has a linear demo. I haven't actually played for that, but when you get into the world yourself, the only thing you can do is just drive around and play with some graphical settings and, you know, smear your face in pixels, so to say. But it just doesn't feel like there's a focus on gameplay. And I feel like gameplay is starting to lose its... A lot of the games are less gameplay and more about spectacle. Mm-hmm. And you have, obviously, a spectacle fighter, but it's, it's pretty much just an overload of VFX that you have done, visual effects that you have done from your own gameplay. While majority of the games just feel... Here's, here's your big open world. Go play it. Uh, 
can your jaws drop to the floor? Thank you. And that's pretty much the game. There hasn't been much innovation in gameplay, and I'm afraid, even with Unreal Engine 5, in all techy deaths, it pretty much has it for the topest of high end of graphics, and it doesn't show gameplay enough. I feel like that's something that's just being lost these days. I think that we've even. Hit... Sorry, go ahead. Like even if we if we take a linear game, for example, Doom twenty sixteen, it's the most linear game that's released. I think pretty much except Call of Duty, it's the most linear game that got a really lot of following, a lot of hype around it. And I feel like games like that are starting to really diminish in pretty much creativity in terms of gameplay instead of creativity in terms of making the bigger world for the sake of the bigger world. Yeah, and, and I, w I was just going to say, like, I think that <clears throat> gameplay has hit a plateau in design-wise, and I, and I think that this is probably just the fault of uh, just AAA game development in general, but I think that it, it's hit a plateau in where we've hit a lot of designs and we've hit a lot of systems that are templates essentially uh, across the industry and and people want to not deviate away from those um i've actually had a really awesome pleasure of being able to listen to uh, to the designers of doom eternal and of course doom 2016 um hugo martin and he had said a lot of things about their design philosophy inside the studio was that it wanted to give the players more like they have said that it's boring for them to go for combat to be shotgun 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 uh insta kill shotgun 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 uh kick uh shotgun 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 xp and they wanted to i guess re not reinnovate but they wanted to doll up that experience to make the player feel like their combat is actually dynamic in the sense that they wanted um, to create enemies, they wanted to create systems that were more like shotgun, swap to rocket launcher, um, you know, double jump, platform, dash, chainsaw, and then execute. And to them, they found that it was much more impactful to the player in a linear, in a linear um, video game to have a combat system that is essentially dynamic. And that's where they implemented skills and, and, and things like that, where it was less, much more of like the leveling system that you were complaining about earlier. It was like just skills. Uh, essentially, a bunch of them are optional, but skills that allow the player to change and interact with the combat system. Indeed. Uh, since I haven't played Stern, now I've played 2016. It was a few years back now. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the combat in it has been... You have your box standard shotgun. Yeah. You have a standard pistol with infinite ammo. And then you have a rather large arsenal of weapons that you can choose for specific enemies. I remember having the summoner enemy in there, which is just fast-moving, stops for a while and shoots at you. But it was... It was really satisfying to get the Gauss cannon. I'm not sure if it was that. Uh, with the longbow upgrade. I'm not sure about those names. But it was just very satisfying to predict a summoner where they're going to go. 
and just blasting them with this empower shot and thus getting rid of a very important enemy that will otherwise annoy you for the rest of the fight due to their mobility and pretty much sporadicness, if I can say so. Uh, otherwise, having the some large enemies that dash at you make the rocket launcher a really dangerous weapon to use. And a lot of the combat really comes down to choosing the right weapon for the situation, which doesn't leave a weapon behind, more often than not. And that's... I think that a lot of uh, just the other side of the games, the open world, comes down to stealth a section, if you fail the stealth, combat it out, and you pretty much never choose a different arsenal, I feel like. Yeah, and even in games like Elden Ring and Breath of the Wild that I've mentioned earlier that I praise very much, um, there are a large amounts of sections in the game myself um, that I stuck with one weapon or stuck with one armor set or stuck with a certain play style, whether it be aggro, more defensive, magic-based, um, or whatever it may be. Um, I find myself sitting in one or two zones of comfort in which I'm like, this is I this is what I like, this is what works for me, and it has you know, statistically worked a lot in the past, so we're just gonna stay with that. And that's what I value about Doom Eternal and then Doom twenty sixteen is that introducing it's like their tutorial doesn't just stop at or their tutorial isn't just a level or just isn't a quest or isn't a singular expositional area, right? Their tutorial exists across the entirety of the game in which they introduce new enemies and new characters and new well, mechanics and systems that change the that force the player to change the way they're thinking that's uh, another thing about the tutorial in dune specifically is that it just gives you the tools but it doesn't exactly tell you how to use them you obviously have some loading screen tips that help you in that direction but other than that it just gives you the tools, and then it's up to you to decide what's useful where. Yeah, and, and that goes back to the design philosophy of id, uh, of id Software. It's like Hugo Martin has said that the weapons in the game are more like how they thought about them is more like instruments, right? So how I would play a guitar may be different from how you would play a guitar. Um, and I think that that's a wonderful design philosophy when it comes to boosting replayability of specifically the shooter genre. And and I think that Doom and Doom Eternal are wonderful markers of the industry and where where we would be going next. Um, but just keeping on track for the Unreal Engine Five, um, I mean, is there anything specifically you're excited for? For Unreal Engine, I, I think Nanite and Lumen are great, um, and, and I just think the host of tools that they've implemented inside the engine are wonderful as well too. Like uh, you know, animation mirroring, um, and a bunch of other things. Cube edit. One of the things that I'm really excited about is their new procedural audio system. Mm -hmm. I have played a bit with it, but it's something that really excites me for what Creepway uh, developers. Or, you know, just people with sound experience, generally, mm -hmm. you have to opera with it. 
But another thing that I'm most impressed with Unreal Engine 5. So, as I said, it runs on my 1070 Ti with RTX Lite graphics, but I actually tried running it on an even older PC. It's something that I call my server, but it's pretty much just an 11-year-old workstation at this point. And I tried running the Unreal Editor under it, obviously with the new settings disabled, since they usually hog up a lot of resources, but Unreal Engine actually ran on that PC. And I'm really impressed by just how far and wide support is for the engine, especially considering that this server is pretty much just a first generation i7 with a one gigabyte graphics card. <laughs> and it ran the engine, it ran the editor successfully. I know it sounds, sounds a bit ridiculous, but it actually makes me excited for uh, just how scalable things will be. I think the newest Unreal Engine will actually show its biggest power in, for example, something like an eSports title, mm -hmm. where you have a wide variety of support for things, and you can turn on and off the new tech. And then you would have, for example, a super low-poly version of a map. And the casters will load a super high-poly version with all the graphics on, and you would have Someone who's on this course trying to run at maximum frames per second, they would have really bad graphics that won't be nice to look at, but then the casters can make a really nice spe spectacle of the entire fight. And I think I'm more excited about that than having large open worlds that really bustle up with just things plotted about. As far as, as far as I'm concerned, I'm not exactly an open world specialist. I'm much more concerned about making the game for the player mm -hmm. instead of making the the world for the player's eyes, for example. Yeah. So we're kind of, with that being said, we're kind of in the opposite spectrum, right? Like as a level designer, I'm 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 worried more about the world. Um. So let's move this towards your specialty and less less of mine. Um, so in the shooter genre, you said you mostly spend in, in shooters. Let's let's talk about that. What what are your favorites? Unreal Tournament, obviously, and I think I would point to 2004 being my absolute favorite among them. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I really respect about every Unreal Tournament that has come is the host of modding tools that you have available to yourself. And as a matter of fact, Unreal Tournament 2004 actually spawned three different, I think, rather popular games that we know to this day. Those being Killing Floor, Red Orchestra, and Rocket League, as a matter of fact. Rock wow, Rocket League. Yes, there Let's... was actually a Carbol mod oh, for wow. Unreal Tournament 2004 which you could play for free if you had the base game. And since Unreal Tournament actually added the vehicle systems, that's what they used for a lot of this, uh, a lot of the game's phone cycle, shall so say. And Red Orchestra, while it's pretty much far from what's Unreal Tournament itself, you know, uh, an arena shooter, Red Orchestra is more on the lines of Push point A, push point B, and it's uh, World War II. 
So you have quite the wide variety of just games that spawn out of an arena shooter simply because of the modding tools. And that's one thing that I feel like has been quite lost in the industry today, having more widespread support for modding. I think that the industry is afraid that modders are... Well, I don't want to say that. I think that the industry is afraid because modders have, his, not historically, but recently, have had a negative connotation attached to them. Um, which Specifically in Bethesda's case. But, but um, yeah, I, I think that mod history is very important to the game because obviously one of my favorite FPS games of all time is Counter-Strike. Uh, which uh, obviously you know that came from a mod of Half Life Two, um, Half Life One actually, or Half Life One, yeah. And I, I think that that's something that the industry is missing is that that creativity in small uh, studios and small sorts, or just even solo developers, is that there is a lot of not unchecked balances, but there's a lot of untapped potential when it comes to having people who are in smaller groups that don't have to pass their work through a lot of hands, which is probably something we're familiar with, our, both of us, is having our work checked over and over and over again and, and passing through a dozens of hands. Indeed. And those small studios, they can still use the, the latest engines. Obviously, they can disable things from them. And I think that's actually great since you can maybe get away with having a low-poly game in Unreal Engine, mm -hmm. but still using the latest graphics or uh, some neat tricks. But in general, just modding has been... As you said, small teams just creating a game on their own and getting... I can actually point to real-time strategies. Warcraft 3 is pretty much the most popular among them that spawned Defense of the Asians and then that spawned League of Legends, which are both pretty big games. And that also came from mods. You can, I believe you can trace a lot of the gaming today as mods in the the things that actually made sudden success, so to say. Just things that aren't conventionally successful. And another thing that I feel like the, the recent games, for example, I'm not sure if Ubisoft games even allow for modding. No, they I don't. I don't believe so. They don't. Yeah. Um, that is something that the... <laughs> uh, that's something that the company has a disdain for um because i think that there is a negative connotation to it um yeah in, inside the inside that our specific company is that they're they, they think that modders are here to break eula and here to uh dig up stuff about the game and, and not they don't see it as a, a creative endeavor well, you obviously have data mining that's trying to get the last drop of the game out. And that's actually something that Unreal Tournament 2003 actually had a prototype for vehicles. And a modder decided to delve into it and so, oh wait, there's actually vehicles in this game. Why, why aren't they in the base game? And we know 2003 was pretty much a humongous flop. 
it had so many issues on launch and they later re-released 2004 this time with new game modes that actually feature those new vehicles and while boulders and data miners do try to break the last piece of the game i think it can prove beneficial to everyone at the end of the day and I can see how the industry in particular is very afraid of modders, but in my honest opinion, I think they're the future of gaming. Otherwise, we'll get quite a lot of stagnation. Well, you touched on a great point. Let's talk about the future of gaming. Um, with Unreal Engine 5, actually, so this this is something that I have, this is an opinion that I have not shared with anybody, but I will share this with you and everybody who is listening. I think that market consolidation is bad for people who are looking for their ways into the industry there that are looking to innovate i mean let's look at games like journey and abzu and those guys are absolutely wonderful um they've won a host of awards and they aren't uh the biggest creators and and frankly half the time uh, or majority of the time those creators often are laid off directly after that endeavor but market consolidation i feel like is bad for these kinds of small studios and it's bad just for studios in general um whereas conversely i think epic games is doing something that i actually admire and respect wholeheartedly um with my entire being is that uh, their philosophy behind the unreal engine their philosophy behind fortnite um which is about connectivity and being able to break down the the barriers and walls of each individual platform. And I think that that's something that has to be admired, and I I think that that's something that we have to utilize going into the future. Indeed, and Unreal Engine in general, Epic releases free assets very often, and they keep adding to the letter of free assets that you can buy, just get at any time, not just buy. And it really helps with indie developers kickstart their projects without needing to create programmer art, so to say. I admire them for that, but even then I'm still afraid that Unreal Engine 5 will demonstrate something to the AAA industry that, yes, you can now do graphics even better and even easier, so go make the biggest world that you can. And I'm afraid that the AAA will focus on that instead of making a more interesting game. Mm-hmm. A bit too formulaic, if you will. Everything has been following too much of a formula. Ubisoft games with the, with their open worlds. Uh, Call of Duty are some very big examples of that. And come to think of it, there actually hasn't been a sort of an arena shooter game that has been popular recently. You don't have a game like Waper and Real Tournament, like it was 20 years ago, being the main playtime of people. I think the I think the only arena shooter, if you could even classify this, would be Halo, that is, is popular indeed. recently. Indeed, but I'm thinking more on the line of something like 1v1 fights. Mm-hmm. Just duels. And I think it also comes down, comes down to game developers being afraid that servers will cost too much since you need to spawn a different instance for those 1v1s. Yeah. And I think becoming team-based has made them just 
ignore the 1v1 space entirely. Is that something that you want to see in the future? Is it the revival of the arena shooter? I would very much like that. And just if you make an arena shooter, please add modding tools to it. I beg you. Yeah, that's something. Arena that's... shooters have quite the opportunity to... If you make a good enough arena shooter with enough systems that can make anything, I think that you have the opportunity to actually see every game happen just out of this one thing. So a game framework, I think, would be the most exact wording about it. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you would like to see in the future? Or is there anything else that you're afraid of? More anything else that you're afraid of? Mm, I would say that hardware support is something that uh, I'm afraid will lose its touch. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that Unreal Engine 5 supports that new hardware, but if games are made to only run with the new Luma technology, since as far as I know, it's very tough to run, and even people with something like a 2060 that has 6 gigabytes of VRAM is having trouble running the Lumen. I'm afraid that games will become a bit too locked up, so to say, for the sake of the spectacle. And I just want to see more just hardware support being, being out there and not locking the INI configs. I know a lot of people hate, uh, especially people that aren't tech savvy, they hear INI configs and they're like, oh no, don't hack my game. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. And I just want to see that being more widely supported, even if it's not something that the general user will make use of. Since a lot of graphics today, I feel like, especially when it comes to post-processing, there's a lot of things that consume a lot of performance while not having that much visual benefit. For example, chromatic aberration is something that tends to be on for many games, but you can turn off manually without an INI config, obviously. And things like that, the filter are huge performance hogs, but then your eyes tend to do depth of field themselves since you're not focused on the entire screen at the time. You only see like what you're focused on. So depth of field feels a bit too much just forced and things you want to see in the peripheral vision it just because you're watching looking at the human in front of you even if your eyes are to the corner of the screen watching something else happen in the world it might actually be something that happens with the open world games where depth of field actually covers up interactions that happen in the world which is something that I, I'm curious now about researching, if that actually happens. That has been a bit of a tangent. I'm sorry about that. No, it's all, it's all good. It's, it's like, it's very important to be able to see, to, or to be able to talk about both the pros and cons of, of our dynamically growing industry, right? Because I feel like if we just focus on one thing at a time, or we focus on growth, or we focus on getting games out to as many hands as possible, or catering to this or to that, or, or, or even just subjecting ourselves to new monetization systems. I feel like if we just talk about the positives, if we just talk about growth, 
um, I think that is detrimental to our industry because it's completely being dishonest with, well, with our history, with what is actually has been bringing, dragging our, uh, dragging our industry down or just frankly stagnating our industry, right? So things like, um, like you touched on, you know, a lack of design, freedom, um, you know, the AAA game space just being, just being too large and being focusing on trends. And I think that that's something that's, again, is dangerous to dis, dis, not disclude them, but to not include them in, in the conversation at hand. So I really, I really value the fact that we're both talking about the pros and cons of our industry. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm thankful, thankful and thank you for, uh, voicing your, your fears and uh, about the, uh, our ever growing lovely industry. Uh, just as a last note about that, uh, when you said, uh, talking about the pros, pros and cons, every time I hear, uh, we now have this new lightning technology that's, <laughs> that looks so cool. And I'm like, okay, what about the older PCs? We now have this bigger world, and then I'm thinking, okay, how are you going to fill it up? And we always have to talk about the other side of the coin. Otherwise, we are going to lose something from the game. Even if it's another player or just uh, more interactivity with the world. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. I mean, again, it's wonderful to be able to talk to talk about those kinds of things because I mean, it's 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 necessary, right? It's necessary to be able to talk about the other side of the coin, because a lot of the time we'll end up losing the history of what made our industry so wonderful, what made um, huge impacts in our industry, right? So games like Unreal Engine uh, or Unreal Tournament um, spawned the host of games that you you spoke about. It's like we lose that uh, what's it called that introspection that we have of our own industry looking forward and trying to grow bigger and better and, and, and faster. And I think that we do need to slow down because we are reaching an area of diminishing returns when it comes to graphical fidelity. Indeed. And also the biggest, the biggest games that are played right now in the world are games that actually don't require very powerful PCs. You can play League of Legends on my set server at more than 60 frames per second. And I mean, yeah, you can play League of Legends, Dota, CSGO, all of these wonderful games, Teamfight Tactics. You can play all of these games on like a i3 and a 750. Yeah, exactly. So I think that there's something to be tapped in that market, just coming up with something new, like Teamfight Tactics, you know. It's just a note battler, but for PC at this point. So it was interesting to see an innovation that doesn't require, you know, an even big and open, bigger open world, for example, or even newer lightning tech. It's just something that spawned out of thin air, basically. What was it actually? Auto chess in Dota. Yeah, auto chess. Yes. Which is also another mod, coincidentally. Oh, I didn't know that. What was it? <laughs> I didn't know it, that at all. It's a custom app. It's a custom app for Dota that some guy made. And that's what spawned all the auto battlers, auto chess, teamfight tactics, and auto chess in Dota, obviously. Wow. I did. To, to think that it was a mod of a mod, I did. I mm -hmm. never. That has never crossed once crossed my mind. 
And that's why I'm saying that modding actually brings in the biggest innovation in the gameplay specific side of things. Mm-hmm. And that's something we need to see more of instead of bigger open world. Well, uh, thank you again. Thank you for, for talking about that kind of stuff. Um, I just wanted to ask you an- another question. What are, what are some of the resources that have helped you along the way? And And I just want to spend a little bit of time diving back into our history just a little bit. I know you and I have, I, I have great respect for Epic Games. They have helped me along the way a whole lot and they hold a huge part in my history. And then of course they've held a huge part in our history, which is uh, as a working relationship, which is that uh, we met over um, Unreal, or we met over Epic Games' products and stuff. Um, so actually, I want to cite you as a source, as a resource that have helped me along the way. So thank you so much for that. Welcome. Thank you for uh, also being part of my life in some ways. Your uh, consultation has been invaluable to me. Yeah, and, and it's, so, it's so funny that how we met was over a video game. Um, and, and frankly, to be honest with you, that video game has had, um, quite a huge impact on the industry, especially on the Unreal Engine 4 aspect of things. Um, so let's, let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about, uh, good old Paragon. Let's, uh, let's take a, oh. yeah, let's take a trip down memory lane, big dog. Oh, you're hitting me in the heart now. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but uh, uh, yeah, we met over we met over a wonderful video game, and um, you saw my career uh, trajectory shift in real time. And, and again, your consultation and our collaboration in design documents and of course small projects have been uh, invaluable to me as well too. I'm glad about that. But uh, for learning resources, I think you said that in the beginning. I think the first thing that actually started with me learning the Unreal Editor back 20 years back now mm-hmm. was actually my father, since he, he actually printed pretty much the entire documentation of the Unreal script before it was C++. So That's... he had the entire documentation of Unreal script. That's so wild. That's, that's crazy. And instead of having to just go around, uh, you know, wikis, because back then the internet was really painful, specifically for my country. A lot of the things were still dial up, so pages loaded basically minutes per page, especially on a documentation wiki. So having that on hand was really helpful. But in general, just asking my father about, uh, how I should do things, how he has been a very big learning experience for me, as in, how do I say it? A learning assistance, maybe. Since he was what actually advised me a lot about what to do and how to do it. I'm pretty sure that he's a lot of the reason why I'm actually doing things optimized now instead of having to you know, I can run my project on my server, but if it wasn't for him, I maybe wouldn't be able to run it even on my nice PC. If I have to be completely honest. Mm-hmm. So communication is very important among the development. No matter a small or a big, big game. Actually, specifically for a big game, but just it's invaluable. 
a one-man team still needs to communicate at some point in time. And even for the minor things. And and that's so funny, actually. This leads into one of my effortlessly leads into another question I had was is there such thing as over communication in, in your in, in the companies that you've worked for in your game development history? Is there such a thing? Over communication. I'm not entirely sure, you know, I have been communicating with two teams and I'm trying to think of an example of over communication because that word is currently all over my head. Oh, um, communicating too much. Communicating to a point where you're essentially beating a dead horse or essentially oh, yes. um, uh, trying to drive home a point that you already understand. Yeah, designers really love to, like, you tell them, no, this system will not work as you think it will. And they start explaining, no, it will become even better like this and so <laughs> on. Please add this to the game, implement this, let's write out. And I'm like, okay, I'll implement this and then it doesn't work. And I, I'm, it's things like that, that I'm actually mediating. I think actually I'll play a very important part in mediating. Just uh, making sure the designers and programmers don't go at each other. Since I can just quickly implement something a designer keeps in mind for them to see it doesn't work, no matter how much they, they think it's going to work. So that's one thing that over-communication has been really a problem for me specifically. But I really have to thank Andrew Engine for that, for just allowing the blueprinting the debugging with that is so useful to see where things are going wrong and making quick iterations isn't that painful at all. And especially seeing how things flow, it's a lot different than seeing it in on code. Yeah, it, so it's, yeah, sorry. That's why that's why I don't think over communication has been a problem for me because Actually, Unreal Engine helps a lot with creating the prototype for that to just I, prove the designer wrong. Yeah, I think <laughs> you know it's <laughs> it's so funny when you say that. I feel like I feel like you're not targeting me, but I feel bad. I feel bad because I'm that guy, you know. Well, not specifically that guy that you're referencing, but I'm that guy that's like, let's uh, let's try to add more, you know. And, uh, and, and and I feel like, to me, on my side, I don't think there is such a thing as over-communicating because I feel like until the point is made, until it is, what's it called? Until it clicks in somebody's head, I, I think that that's really more important than anything else because, you know, as you, you and I both know, working in large teams and working in teams in general, is it's very important to, be, to have cohesion between between all moving parts, right? So when you have two teams specifically that you work with that you mediate between, I mean, is it hard to get everyone to row in the same boat at the at the same speed? Well, since I'm in the middle, it, that helped me. I was the one that actually made the made the rowing the same speed. I was making sure that the programmers don't have too hard of a time implementing things that I have made, and they have made sure that the designers don't add too much to the pile of the programmers having to optimize. So that has been 
I think that my job just really doesn't have an equivalent right now. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of the design team, the story team, for example, the programmer team, the level designers, and I think just being in between them all helps really a lot with making things calm between the teams. And as the industry grows, do you think that it's going to be more commonplace to have a position like yours? Because essentially you're... I mean, as far as I know, you're the pioneer of this of this job. You know, you're the you're on the forefront of this uh of this market. I I don't know anybody else that does the job that you do. Indeed, and that's again, I believe that's something that Unreal Engine was able to spawn with the blueprints. Is that I think that such a person can be very valuable for a team to help. Uh, reduce the differences between the various teams, just being a mediator between them and knowing just a bit of everything can be helpful to everyone. Even if the director himself wasn't exactly on top of the game, mm -hmm. I'll be honest, me just being there in the meetings, able to communicate between teams has been very helpful in creating a good uh, middle point that every team can be agreeing on. And it's um, and it's so fascinating that you said that you you cite that you're the reason why everybody's rowing in the same the same speed. And and I feel like it's I feel like since I'm on one one of the teams that you you mediate between, it's like for me it's very it's very hard for me to get everybody to row at the same speed and in row in the same boat uh essentially because um because there's always not a need but there's there's always a fear that what i'm doing is not big or good enough right because they're like you said earlier it's like a lot of the industry is relying on spectacle and that makes my job these trends make my job infinitely harder because everybody wants prettier things. Everybody wants more things. Everybody wants uh, ray tracing, even uh, even um, in in every game. And it, it's hard for me to be able to communicate, articulate, or even be able to implement a lot of this stuff um, to to match these trends. Um, do you think that something like ray tracing, or the do you think that this spectacle is detrimental to game development on a wide scale or do you think that the spectacle is here to stay and that this is something that's the bottom dollar or the bottom line of consumers it's more important to reel them in monetization wise than it is to cater to the developers that is a tough one but generally things are formulaic because they sell well Yes, you know, which, you create yeah. Assassin's Creed Origins, then you have Odyssey. It's not exactly a different game, to be honest. Just a different thematic setting. Yeah. Yes. So a lot of things come down to basically just following a formula and then adding adding the latest and greatest on top of it. And there hasn't been exactly gameplay innovation in everything, which we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. 
So I think that it's possible the, the latest and greatest graphics take away from a team, but you also have the problem of exponentially rising teams and exponentially rising costs that desire exponentially rising sales, which leads to creating games exponentially more formulaic so that people know what to expect. Yeah, and, so, and I think that's I think this is just a byproduct of our growing industry, right? Because a decade ago, mm-hmm. I mean, you and I have both seen this industry move at such a rapid pace. But a decade ago, I mean, it was not something that uh, was popular, you know. Mm-hmm. And then now it's uh, now it's shoo, it's encompassing several other industries, and it's uh, things like Unreal Engine have been in, in, in approaching and encroaching on other industries as well, much like movies and uh, movies, films, uh and and music and i think that as our industry grows bigger it is substantially harder to cater to the devs just because it's more about making money and less about making uh, a product that stands on its own well the problem is how do you make uh if you make a product that stands on its own then how do you make money out of it and if you create something too different maybe people won't won't buy it for that reason. They see the reviews and they're like, oh, this this isn't this game at all. This sequel is nothing like this game at all. So I'm not sure how to feel about it. Here's a 6.5 review from me. And that impacts the general consumer in, about whether something's too different or not. Yeah, but I do also think that if... I really don't want to put this on indies, and I don't want to put this on like FromSoft, because FromSoft is a uh, is it's a very niche example of doing of deviating from the, the the formula, and then somehow it has exploded upon the mainstream. I mean, Elden Ring sold twelve million in one week, which is uh, frankly unheard of for uh, something of of that caliber or, or of developer of that caliber. I think that, in general, the gaming industry being at large like this is, it, it, it's a beast, you know? Like, it's a beast, it's, it's, we have created this. We have created this with games like Call of Duty, with games like Dota, League of Legends, Fortnite even have contributed to this. So I think that it's inevitable to, that we'll see a plateau in gameplay systems, graphical fidelity, and just in general innovation, that we're going to have to break it down and bring it back to basics. Indeed. I feel like we're rapidly approaching that point. And I'm more excited to see about the what the indie space actually brings with all the new engines, now that Unreal is actually free to download. You know, not to sound like an advert, but it's free to download, free to use for the first million. So that's opening a lot of windows for indies to pick it up, and especially with the hardware support. I think we can see a lot of a lot more new innovation without needing to create their own systems for too many things. Yeah. So looking forward in the next decade, I do want to ask you: Do you think that photorealism? is going to be tangible in the next decade. In the next decade, photorealism will be tangible. 
I think it can be. With uh, Nanite being Unreal's one of Unreal 5's leading technologies, it uses a lot of photo scans that get that are tens of thousands of polygons for a simple rock. I think photorealism is easy to be achieved with that. However, I'm more thinking about the implications of you have photorealism, but then what did you do with it? <laughs> yeah, because at the end of the day, photorealism is great if there's uh, is great to draw players in and to draw people in, but uh, it's not going to serve a purpose if your game is uh, empty. Exactly. I think photorealism is just a tool to to use. While I do want, I do want to have photorealism in the mainstay in the next decade or so. I think that it will be tangible after this generation of consoles. I think that it's. I think as we approach the uncanny valley, I think that we do need to take a step back. Um, because there's a lot of issues with, and and I've said this in my consulting work to uh, <laughs> to plenty of of small time developers. I'm sure you know the ones that we've spoken to. Um, that's photorealism, photorealism and graphical fidelity is it's a uh, it's hard. It's it's a it's it's an explosive barrel. It's it's a, it's a barrel of dynamite because as things get better. You, it takes longer to implement these patches. It takes longer to implement new content, right? A lot mm -hmm. of what you touched on earlier is like the games that are most popularly played, the games that are that generate the most revenue are ones that run on essentially toasters and Samsung fridges, right? Like yes, the and those are the ones that are updated most frequently. Indeed. It is a lot of what, uh, like, we talked about Paragon earlier, but it's something that actually suffered from the photorealism creep, mm -hmm. in a way, is that the assets, it had, what was it, 39 heroes released? For 12 million, I think, was what they said? Uh, and yes. So the, the cost per hero comes down to really a lot. Because you have a lot of modders, a lot of shader work, a lot of particles that have to be created with the insane graphical fidelity that was Paragon. And the game actually had just no skins at all that really interested people. There were very few skins that actually changed any effects for while League pumps out. I'm not sure what the count is, but Pretty much every patch has a new skin that has new graphical effects, new everything, really. So the games do suffer when it comes to constant updates. And I think that actually modding can also suffer from that in a way. Mm -hmm. Since you might have a mod that you maybe could create a new hero for Paragon, but it's not going to look like it's part of the world. It's going to look out of place entirely. If you didn't have um, a team of expert people behind behind creating the hero's design and so on. So 
going back to basics is something that I feel like needs to happen for the games, but also I don't think it will happen because people still buy and play the latest and greatest all the time. Yeah, and I think that we have to strike a fine line as as speaking from the AAA perspective. We have to strike a fine line because while while we're in the business when you're in the AAA business, you're in the business to make money, you're not in the business to make video games. Indeed. Which is it's very unfortunate to say something like that, but uh, like we have to make money somehow, right? It's a business, not a soup kitchen. So it's like we need to have these bigger and, and and more bombastic games, and I think that that substance, that uh, that industry monetization, that uh, this industry's, I guess, philosophy in the AAA space is is very very so much in its infancy, and I think that within the next decade we're gonna we're gonna have to go back to basics. We're gonna have to realize that like now it's got such a massive global appeal what have we done to ourselves you know aren't actually the latest games from the AAA, like call of duty vanguard was it called Not yeah sure. yeah i think that's what it's called Did it, i i'm pretty sure it had like very negative reviews surrounding it battlefield 2042 i'm not sure about Sorry about the names, I'm just not exactly up to date with them. And that game was so glitchy on release. And still people had a lot of uh, just negative reviews about it. Mm-hmm. Ubisoft Legion, Watch Dogs Legion, was it? <laughs> uh, yes, yes, yeah, the, yeah, that one. If you have any opinions on that, you're more than welcome to share them. Oh... One of the things that I really have to agree on with some critics is that procedurally generating every character in the game makes it lose like the personal touch, like the immersion you have with the character. Since everything is procedurally generated, it, you don't exactly have a designer who has touched it. And it feels rather soulless when it comes to the gameplay. And you usually will get the best and greatest characters every mission anyway. You might have like you might take Granny with Taser, for example, of a couple of missions, just you know, play around with the systems. But other than that, it's it feels rather soulless. And I think that that was something that uh, that had a narrative cohesion with, right? With the concept, of, well, not a narrative cohesion, with a with a design cohesion, the philosophy behind, like. You can play as anyone because essentially this is the real world. These issues that are boiling in the game have been boiling in the real world for quite some time now. And we wanted to mimic that. But I think that narratively there was a disconnect uh, or at least not a very strong connection between that gameplay system that we implemented. Indeed. Again, procedural generation is something that the industry has been going forward to. So Minecraft is the biggest example for procedural generation, and you pretty much make the story for yourself. But even then, just some people aren't creative enough, and they will just not play the game for that reason. So you have pretty much the same thing happening with Legion, where you don't feel exactly connected to the world if it's random every time. 
And I believe the characters there could, could die. I'm not sure about yes, that. Yes, they can die. Yeah. And you can so that, that gives you even less reason to really stick with someone. Because in Minecraft, you at least can have like a house that you should build for yourself. The bet is there, you know. It's something that you made yourself. But this character, you might have played him for five missions and suddenly, poof, he dies. And all your narrative is now lost and you have to use someone that you basically recruited for an ability for a mission and that's about it. Or just think that it will be cool one day. And you just lose the connection to the world, really. Connection to the narrative, connection to the world. Because this narrative as your main character that you had for those missions is just something that you have built up yourself. So losing something that you have built up yourself is pretty much detrimental to just your experience of the narrative of the game. Or just even player enjoyment, right? Because like Indeed. when you build up something yourself, you like you have an investment. It's something personal. This is something that you've gone out of your way to to do, to make, to create, to it has a touch of yourself in the game. And losing that is, like you said, detrimental because it, it really makes the player feel like they're starting anew again. And that is the last thing we want to do in a video game. And especially with narratives. So I don't believe, I think starting Assassin's Creed 4 Black Flag onwards, Mm -hmm. The main protagonist is just random every time. Correct me if I'm wrong, sorry. Uh, Black Flag onward? I mean, uh, the the person you play as in the Anima Machine, let's so say. Oh, um... Well, let's see, after that one we had... Uh... Uh, what, what was the one in Victorian era? Yeah, that's the... Syndicate? Syndicate, yeah. It was two characters, yeah. But my point is more that you had like this uh, steady character that you that you progress through Assassin's Creed one, two, three. So you had quite the attachment there, and the new Assassin's Creed just feel like you don't have exactly an attachment to the game after you're done with it. You're not waiting to see, okay, what's going to happen to my anima character now. I'm not sure about, exactly about the name. Maybe it was oh, Animus. De De uh, Desmond was the yes. Uh, Desmond. Desmond was the the main protagonist. Yes, but um, my point is that for onwards, I don't believe he had a Desmond in it. He just had someone who's new to the game, new to the world, every time. Yeah, it was a number. It was it was just like experiment one oh one or whatever. Yeah, I feel like there there is a. There needs to be gameplay systems that are narratively attached because then it would incentivize players to come back next time, right? Come back for Assassin's Creed 2 or 3 or 4 or 5 or 10 or 12 or 26, you know, down the line. When, when we start creating things that are unattached from the narrative or just in general, just unattached from many mechanics or systems at play, I feel like we're going to get to a point where... Uh, gamers are going to see that this is just a cash grab or this is just uh unfortunately this is a phrase that has been very popular recently but this is a dlc indeed 
and and I think that that sentiment is going to continue to stay as long as the AAA space, well, essentially stays the same. Indeed. I think that's something that starts with for the most since, you know, the killing of Desmond. I think for just maybe three in a way, but four just completely changed Assassin's Creed. Yeah. Four, At that point, four, you, yeah. you, you felt like it's more a pirate game than it was an Assassin's Creed. And yeah. Especially that you didn't have a Desmond to really care about. It really just didn't feel like an Assassin's Creed game. If they just named it Black Flag, I would have been fine with that. But just that I think it's too much franchise, really. Yeah. And coming back to, you know, my point about just doing 5% of someone's health from a backstab. It's another thing that uh, just doesn't add to the immersion of the game. And the leveling, you know, you're too high, you're too low of level. Uh, Black Flag actually did that a lot with the ships and the combat with the ships. Where, oh no, this frigate uh, is 17th level and you're barely level 3. You don't even try to attack it. And it's sort of spiraled spiral down until it reached Origins and Odyssey. And the gameplay systems feel too tacked on with all the leveling and stuff, especially when it comes to just numbers and dealing damage. Your leveling becomes, you're, you now have five more HP and you deal 10% more damage. Congratulations. Instead of, I leveled up by gaining an ability like you did in Assassin's Creed 1, for example, where you get the drawing knives that actually allow you to solo out guards in the world without having to take too much time to really get rid of them. And I think that having leveling is like, having leveling tied to like a, a numeric measurements instead of like a tangible experience is the incorrect way to do things, right? Because a leveling, and you may have differ differing opinions on this, but leveling in video games started as a way to reward players, a, a way to keep track of your time, essentially, keep track of the, uh, the amount of, what's it called? The, the amount of engagement you have with the, the game. This started in games like uh, Gears of War, um, which is what, as far as I know, the earliest example of of leveling in in a video game, leveling in a in a first in a shooter game, essentially in a multiplayer game, right? Not leveling in general in a video game because Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest, but um, systems like that weren't like when you level up in a multiplayer, it's for reward and engagements. It, it wasn't necessarily for unlocking new skills. I think as we attach those RPG elements to games like Assassin's Creed and, and Horizon Forbidden West, I think that we start to lose, we, we start to have a disconnect between several mechanics, and we start to have a disconnect between how cohesive the story is to essentially the character. And that was my biggest, did you ever play Tomb Raider? Tomb Raider, I played a bit of it. I remember it, in a way. Yeah, uh, that was my biggest issue with the reboot of Tomb Raider, was that there was a narrative dissonance between Laura and her, well, essentially what's happening in the narrative. Like, she, as soon as she 
finish crying in a cutscene, uh, you would return to Headshot Island, and you would just mm-hmm. ding, 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 ding until you leveled up and, and got the skills you needed to unlock this barrier that very early on told you you don't have the skills or you don't you're not high enough level or you don't have the tool for this. Go uh, go uh, kill ten tigers for their skin to make this new thing that will definitely help you kill these baddies instead of having a more meaningful progression towards that. Which is something that they fixed in the third game that um that where the tools that you are that you run across are necessary in the narratives um the narratives uh, uh what's it called um placement not placement but the, how deep you are in does that make sense i i can't remember the word right now <laughs> the yeah uh, the, uh, the uh, how far you are in your progress <laughs> your progress yep. your narrative <laughs> progress oh my god so it's like that was to me the third game was it was uh, cohesive cohesive in my experience much better than the first game and i actually got into an ar- not an argument but i got into a debate uh, on the internet about uh, which tomb raider game was the best tomb raider game which one was the worst and a lot of people seem to think that the third one was the worst but uh, i think that the first one was the worst in that regard Well, I can't really comment on that. I didn't play the first game through through the entirety of it, but mm-hmm. really a lot of the games, when it comes to open world, are you stealth somewhere, backstep a few baddies, if someone accidentally sees you, you go into combat mode until you get to the next section of the mission or whatever, and repeat that until the game basically ends. Especially with strongholds and so on, it just doesn't make sense to go like a combat build for something more often than not. Since the the moment you're spotted, everybody in the section knows where you are and it makes things really hard to just combat your way through. So basically every time you're funneled into stealthing the game. And it's been something that really irked me in terms of open world. For example, a game like Prototype, that I hold in very high regard. Well, it didn't look the best, it just offered options for both stealthing and combat alike. Yeah, I mean we could talk about that. What do you you know what what do you like about that? And what what do you think the industry should learn from prototype? Well, prototype is one of the only games where you leveled up from just the abilities you gained. I prototype you in added leveling in that boosts your abilities, but one the first game was where you unlocked things progressively that you could spend your points on, but leveling was done entirely through yourself. And you could have the smallest help helpful in the game, but still through majority of it. And also the game was littered around with just objects you could kill the big enemies with. So there was a lot of diversity in how you approach the game, how you approach the open world. Well, of course, there were some four stealth sections. It just felt a lot of a lot more natural to how you play the game. That's uh, 
that's uh I mean yeah I I actually have fond memories of a prototype and, and infamous myself too and I think those gameplay systems in that game definitely help well I mean they de definitely help break down barriers and re reimagine what it is to have like a leveling system and reimagine what it is to have actual skills in a video game right because a lot of times Indeed. skills are you do 5% more damage or uh it's more effective in this area or that area or you essentially unlock the ability the optional ability most of the time um to have a different variance or a different system or a different this or that but it never really stops to think to yourself it really the game really never stops and, and tells you like please use our skills because they are like they're built from the ground up to actually be valuable right because a lot of times it's like you're in Tomb Raider, it was like your arrows are more silent. It's like, okay, well, they, you know, arrows are a key mechanic to stealth, so how can they be more silent? You know, um, it should be things like, you know, more range. Um, it should be things like firing multiple at a time. It should be things like um, arrow durability or the ability to always pick up arrows afterwards. So it incentivizes, it, it brings a level of risk and reward to stealth, right? Like, if your arrows don't break on impact, you want to obviously conserve materials so that you go out and you fetch your arrows again, which means that you either have to complete the combat area or the stronghold in, in its entirety, or you risk yourself out of stealth to go and retrieve more ammo, and, or retrieve the ammo that you just spent. And I think that things like that those skills like that are very important to games with rpg elements because it it allows the player to essentially form how they want to play indeed it's something about uh prototypes approach things because there you can kind of range things out but more often than not you have to be up and close with your enemy to really do damage to them or you have to be really exposed in how you do it so it allows you to really just make your own gameplay system while something like 5% five per, five resistance to explosions, for example, is not something that you make use of. And in a game like Tomb Raider, for example, uh, if your quiver just gets more arrows, it's pretty much a no-brainer to get it because you have now the stronghold of... 10 baddies, if you have a quiver of 15, you can pretty much clear it, instead of if you had maximum 5, where you had to just actually get close and personal with enemies. Oh, that's what's up. Um, we're moving this uh, essentially away from games, just a hair. What do you do on your free time? On your on my free time, whenever um, you have it. <laughs> well, it's, I'm pretty much just always gaming or game developing. Recently, I've been actually working with an Xbox Kinect, as mm -hmm. a matter of fact. For oh uh, wow, what a what a name, what a throwback. <laughs> indeed, but I'm using the Xbox One version of it, which is even more advanced now. And I have been working with it for a streaming setup, but I won't delve too deep into that. I'm not sure exactly when I'll do it. Mm -hmm. I have an apartment moving to do before I do that. And pretty much that's about it. I have been playing a lot of Final Fantasy XIV 
Have you been enjoying that? A lot of people have been telling me about it. Uh, it's actually the game just got uh just today got a very big patch, which I have been really enjoying, and I'm still able to go through a majority of it. But it's something that really feels more like uh, a social system than it really is a game, mm-hmm. in a way. Since you have, obviously, you have the raids that get you the best gear and so on, but you also have a lot of RP elements that are with the game, for example, with houses and glamours that you can place on yourself. Glamours being outfits, for example. And that allows you to get some more flair to your character. And it's, I actually enjoy it. I'm not going to tell anyone to download it, but it does have a free trial, which includes the base game and the first expansion with no friction on playtime. Sorry for the pluck. No, it's, it's all good, man. This is, uh, I'm, you know, I'm giving you a uh, full stage whenever you want. Talk about whatever you want. I still want to play through Doom Eternal. I've been spying on getting a discount on it. Mm-hmm. And I have a plan to actually go through that. Since I've been seeing a lot of good reviews about it. And oh, it's, it's, to... oh, it's amazing. If you love 2016, you'll love Eternal. It sounds amazing. Can't wait. Yeah, well... uh. I haven't re- really been playing much. I actually have been stuck on Elden Ring, to be honest with you. Uh, I am unfortunately hit the point of the game where I feel like there's not much left. Um, and, well, that's absolutely normal. How many hours did you get out of it? 66. Well, a little bit over that, 70. It's still. Which is actually... Quite a good number. Which is uh, more than I've played in games in the last couple of years because for me free time is a little hard to come by I so as a game developer i've spent less time playing video games which is very unfortunate because i'm a gamer first before i was a game developer but uh i'm happy to hear that you've been playing more games that you've uh since you've become a uh, since you've entered the industry and i, I think that's uh, when I play games, my developer brain never really quite turn, turns off. Um, I'm, how is that for you? Oh, it's the same for me. I'm just thinking all the time, oh, this could have been better if this was a bit changed and so on. And it sometimes occurs because people are telling me, oh, I really enjoyed this game and I'm just playing it and I'm like, oh, this has so many issues. <laughs> was there a game like that that... Uh, that- in recent memory that that happened where everybody was praising it endlessly and you were just like oh, i don't see it i'll let me go through my sim library with a quick glance and i'll tell you oh yeah take because your time i'm having trouble remembering which game it was that was i mean i have a few games like that myself right i like games like tomb raider and uh Borderlands, Borderlands 3, to be specific, though I think that Borderlands 3 hasn't had too much critical acclaim, but I do hear that a lot of people talk highly of it. Well, I think it's an, a serviceable game. I think there are a lot of issues with it. Um, a Last of Us is, is another game that has critical acclaim, which, I, you know, to be frank with you, I think I'm being a little disingenuous here. I think that game is v- very good, but at the core, I think that my gripes were that it doesn't, 
it's not innovated. The gameplay is, well, to be frank with you, generic in, in, in both. And, and I think that a lot of people boost the gameplay's, uh, what's it called? The gameplay's value by the presentation of the, just the overall world design, RPG elements, crafting system, all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, that that's a that's a game in recent memory that I remember telling people like you know while I really enjoyed it that there's nothing about this game that brings any amount of value to the gaming industry other than graphical quality. And you could argue story, but that's topic for another time. Yeah, that is well, yeah. But I mean, the story is like, like I said, the presentation, uh, um, what's it called? Presentation writing, you know. That that's stuff that like that's invaluable to the industry, but when it comes to terms like actually pushing the boundaries of the of of a video game, I think that it did well in, in utilizing different forms of interactive media. But at its core, I think gameplay wise, I think that it's quite lackluster. Indeed. Um, so I just found the game that I actually had some problems with because yeah. of my game designer brain. That's Hollow Knight. <laughs> oh wow i actually really <laughs> love that game go ahead go hey the, the floor so, is yours the the industry it's up at what what's wait a second i need to formulate my sentences it's past midnight now so oh i am so sorry yeah and as an english second so language right. speaker i totally understand your your thought process so the the world in the game is absolutely gorgeous and the gameplay systems are amazing, but there are just a few places that uh, really bummed me out when playing it. For example, the Bench Guardian boss. Mm -hmm. I had some big trouble with it because I felt like... You know how Older Souls games had the trouble of how oh, I need to now go through these five enemies to go back to the boss and... It felt like you had to go through 10, 20 enemies maybe to get back to the Bench Guardian. Maybe mm -hmm. I wasn't on the right bench, but it just felt punishing that suddenly there's this guy that's guarding the bench that's, that's obviously marked on the map. And instead of me saving in a place that I really needed to save on, suddenly I'm, I need to fight the boss. And another thing was there were these flies in that were shooting like crystal things that linger on the ground. I'm not exactly sure how was their name, but I had some trouble dealing with them for reasons that I tend to be an aggressive gamer and they forced uh -huh. me a bit into, you know, Unreal Tournament Doom. Suddenly I have to wait for this guy to attack me and then I need to counterattack him, which Oddly enough, brought memories of how Assassin's Creed combat worked, but mm -hmm. it just didn't feel exactly correct. Yeah, because they they tend to hold animations for a bit too long, at least for my eyes. I'm not sure if I'm wrong or something, but they hold animations for too long, and I feel like I have to be ready to jump. And basically, those are my two gripes with it. But I think it's more comes down to my own problems with it. I mean, oftentimes I feel like when I play a video game, I, I, I want to I want to say like, well, you know, maybe it's just me 
that has a problem with the game, right? But I'm a very, I'm a very control, uh, heavy player, right? I, and I'm gonna explain this for you. It, it's like if it doesn't feel right, if it doesn't feel seamless, if it doesn't feel interactive, it, if it doesn't feel like I'm forgetting where the buttons are. Um, if it doesn't feel like a natural extension of who I am and, and, and what my hands do, I, I oftentimes drop it, which is something that uh, I'm very unfortunate to say this. I, I like Kana, Bridge of Spirits, if you haven't seen it or played it, but it's the movement when you control Kana feels like there is a sort of lag or it feels like there, it feels like the game is fighting me. Or in turn, I'm fighting the video game trying to do something as simple as movement. So I, I'm actually having a hard time playing that game specifically for that reason, which is odd because it, it has very high marks in the, in the industry across the board on the consumer level. I haven't exactly played that game myself, but I can draw a comparison maybe to some the early 3D platformer days, Nintendo mm -hmm. 64. Oh yeah, where there were a lot of bad control schemes there, or just confusing, especially when it comes to the 3D camera, because people were still figuring out things then. But sometimes it just feels frustrating when it comes to precise platforming that the developers back then really loved to do. So I can understand how controls feel bad, or. Uh, I am a big uh, PSP player of some things. And the, since that console has only one analog stick and it doesn't have, it basically has two triggers, a D-pad for buttons and the analog stick for the gameplay. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things that are cut off and some shooters really suffer from that. But the one of the latest shooters that came out for it, Resistance, actually had a control scheme that I've actually used myself when it comes to using the PSP as a gamepad for my PC. So it's just things that they're figuring out bit by bit. But when it comes to just seeing years of evolution in the gaming, and as you say, with Kana having the some call it like tank controls where you go forward, but actually your characters, because they're turned around, they have to first turn around and then go forward. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, that's something that can be really annoying. Yeah, it just feels like, I don't, I don't know. I dislike having to fight a video game to play. And, and again, a lot of the time I feel like it's me, but it's like sometimes it isn't, you know? Indeed. And, and sometimes with your developer brain, you're just wondering, is this me or is this actually the game? And people are praising it, but ignoring that, that one flow for the sake of the rest of the game being good. Yeah, and, and it usually starts at the base level. Like Mario 64, I will always praise to the end of time. Love that game. They made Mario feel so wonderful just in the beginning area that... There could be tons of design issues with that game, but gameplay was just frantic and amazing. 
and and controlled well and that's it ended up being possible that a lot of the design decisions that were you that were implemented in that game could be completely uh, overlooked because the the game's control the way you controlled mario was so fluid that you're able to uh, basically avoid a lot of these issues and that's one thing that i'm afraid from for the industry right now that you have this game that has the amazing gameplay and people are willing to ignore the rest of its flaws for the sake of it just feeling well to play. And I feel like feeling great to play has been a bit lost these days. Sorry you... to go back to... No, no, it's all good. We, part, but... we, can, we can always go back a little bit if you want to expand on that. I, I was just about to hit the closing questions for you. But go ahead. Well, that's that's about it. That's back then, devel developers felt a lot more like they were focused on the core loop of the game, mm -hmm. and that's something that's been rather missing these days. Yeah, and I feel like again, when people touch on that kind of stuff, when they make a gameplay loop as short as like thirty seconds, right? Because that's something that Halo just it's it's like it, it does well. Halo Infinite does well. Right, the gameplay loop has been shortened to like thirty seconds, and it feels immaculate. The problem is that the lack of content, and there are a lot of people who can overlook that. Right, there are a lot of people who can just like I like the gameplay loop. It is what it is. I play the game. I enjoy it, and I feel like if there was a balancing issue with a weapon or a gun, that people were able to overlook that. I mean, I played CS:GO for nigh a decade now, and it's the same way. I've been through patch dozens of patches where they've broken guns and busted things, but because the core gameplay loop is so stellar that I'm able to overlook things like that just because, well, I'm having fun with the game. The game is just generally fun. Indeed. But anyways, moving on. Um, thank you so much for having me interview you, and thank you so much for just uh, just sitting around and talking games with me. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you can share with our listeners today. Communicate, people. Please. Something that you create, it may be it may be for you, but you need to really communicate your idea to others. Otherwise, the idea will be lost. That's specifically more for like the creative crowd out there, but really make sure to communicate your ideas. Even if you make it yourself, make sure you communicate the idea of your idea in a way. And is there one piece of advice that you could give for people who are looking to get into the industry? Get creating. <laughs> That's the most important thing. You can plan all you want, but until you create something, you're still no one. Yeah, it's a merit-based industry, and it's leaned away from degrees. And to be frank with you, I think college doesn't, at least speaking from the United States standpoint, college doesn't necessarily prepare game developers for the actual pipeline of development. Um, so yeah, to expound on that, just create. If it's bad, that's fine. You've made something. You are 75% ahead of people who have never created anything in their lives. So even if it's bad, you can still learn. And that's a learning experience for what not to do next time. So again, thank you so much, Troll. I really appreciate your time and, uh, and your interest in, in doing this. So thank you, everybody who is listening. This has been Industry Insider. 
Again, Troll here is a accomplished game designer, programmer, and creator for the last eight years, and he has had Unreal Engine um, experience for the last 20. Um, thank you, guys. Have a great night.